0: at CA. Let's get started.
1: Well, I'm really happy to bring you the fifth and final message today in our True Friendship series. We've been learning to enjoy this friendship with God, this friendship that God has created us for, through Jesus, by the Spirit. And I hope that through this series, you've been capturing a little bit of what it means to actually enjoy That friendship. We've been challenged to elevate spiritual friendships among the body of Christ, among fellow followers of Jesus, to deepen in those relationships, to maybe even seek someone out where we could walk in spiritual friendship with them. So we've been elevating our spiritual friendships. We've been encouraged to extend God's friendship to others who maybe don't yet realize that God has created them to be his friends. But if we were just to stop there, I think it could be, even for me, a little bit too much kumbaya or something like that. I don't know if it sits that way with you. But when we talk about all this friendship, it could feel like it's a lot of sweetness and light. And while there's some tough stuff, really, it's all good. Maybe even easy. Friends, friends, And yeah, maybe with some people who aren't a lot like you, but they're at least open to friendship and happy to be at the table. I mean, people who don't really know you, but maybe are willing to go deeper. Piece of cake, really. Even if it maybe moves us into places that are uncomfortable. But what about the people who aren't? (laughs) Who aren't open? What about the guy who does not want to be your friend, and maybe you do not want to be his friend either. What about the woman who doesn't want your invitation to coffee or into friendship? What about the family who isn't interested in your kindness or your ideas or your overtures or really anything at all? Or worse than that, what about people who are against you, against your faith, who think you're an idiot? or What about people who are simply ignorant to you and maybe ignorant to everyone else for that matter? What about them? Maybe there's people that you find wanting or perhaps they find you wanting because of a certain position that you hold on, well, you name the issue. And then add on top of that list people that are just simply awful. Because there are people like that. Guys you can't stand, women you do not like, people who, in every way, seem to be opposing the good, the sides of things that you care deeply about. What them? And I, I think at this point you might be thinking, well, I sure hope Jesus is not expecting friendship with those guys. I mean, he isn't, is he? Is he? It's no secret today, right now, 2021, the category of not friends seems to be expanding culturally, even in our larger community. Our culture seems to be fraying at the seams. Many of you have noticed this, have talked about this. We're seeing it. Outrage is on the rise uh, vitriol and ugliness isn't just more acceptable, but e- even seems to be encouraged. Meaningful conversation between people of differing and even opposing views seems more and more difficult. And there is incredible disrespect, speech, actions dripping with contempt. Frothing up from our hearts, hearts that seem often wholly given over to anger, to hate of the other, whatever that is. And tragically, heartbreakingly, unbelievably, even, we are seeing this kind of action, words, behavior, heart take root in the church the church of Jesus Christ and it's tearing us apart. I mean, could it be that Jesus' call then to love our enemies is having to even be applied now among his own followers? It actually seems like a contradiction in terms. It should be a contradiction in terms, it's certainly a shameful, sinful state. And yet, it, it looks to me like this is true that we're having to figure out what it means to love an enemy when that enemy is even someone who professes faith in Christ. I mean, I'm now speaking largely, more culturally now, as we look at what's happening around us. And so, whether we like it or not, And we mostly will not like it. We have one final place to go in this series on true friendship. A place where the grace and the good news of Jesus is revealed to the uttermost. Today, we're commanded to embrace friendship across enemy lines. To embrace friendship across enemy lines. The truth is, there's nothing in all of history that displays God's extravagant grace like enemy love. Nothing at all. Enemy love is at the very heart and core of the good news of Jesus because it's at the very heart and core of God himself. In the Apostle Paul's exposition of this new life that Christ has won for us, we find it spelled out clear as day. In Romans 5, 8, and 10, we read these words. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies. Did you catch those two lines in particular? While we were still sinners, you know, not after we got cleaned up, not after we were better, not after we were somewhat well or kind of holy or whatever, not. Still sinners. That's when God showed his love. That's when he sent Jesus. That's when Jesus died for us, while we were still sinners. While we were still enemies. And we need to hear that really clearly. Not when we were God's buddies. Not when we were mildly warmed up or a bit nicer. No. Still enemies. Still opponents. Still rebels. Still wrong. That's when God restored his friendship with us through Christ. We cannot even approach the subject of enemy love. Of of loving across an enemy line. Until we first remember... That we are the subjects of enemy love. If it were not for God's enemy love, none of us, not you, not me, not them, not those people, none of us would be able to stand before a holy God. It's God who reached down into the muck and the guck of our sin and shame and made us his friends, his kids when we were still fighting him off and, and resisting his love and rejecting his good intentions for us, God's love reached to us, his enemies. And that really is square one. And I think, for a lot of us, perhaps this is where we need to camp for a while. We need to realize that this is true before we even approach how we then love others who seem to be our enemies too. But maybe you aren't even quite there yet. I mean, maybe the whole idea of being an enemy of God strikes you as strange. And maybe you're not yet even there where you're saying, yeah, I can see now how I was stuck in my sin or stuck uh, in an in, in alienated relationship with God and how God has overcome that through Jesus. Maybe you're still in a place where you're exploring this still trying to figure out who Jesus is. And I I just want you to hear clearly that I'm really glad you're with us today and that this sits at the heart of the whole story of the Christian scripture, the whole story of the Christian faith that we come to a realization that due to our own actions, um, due to the choices we've made as well as the choices we've inherited, we're born into a broken relationship. We're We're born into an alienated state. And We can't dust ourselves off and get clean enough and get good enough to somehow be in right relationship with this holy God, but God has done everything possible so that we can be restored to him through Christ. And so the whole story of the Christian faith and the invitation to you as someone who's exploring it is to realize that we have this God who's created us for him. And in spite of the muck and the mess and the things we've done wrong and the things that are wrong, God said, none of that is going to hinder me from loving you, from loving us. And so in Jesus, God has made it possible for us to be restored to him. It's a beautiful story. And I hope that as you continue to explore today, you'll hear that invitation again. Maybe you also have been struggling with someone in particular in your family, maybe in the church, maybe in your community, maybe online. You've been struggling, really struggling with how do I actually love this person? Or how do I engage this person fruitfully? Or how do I just not react to this person in really unhelpful ways? And I want to remind you that often when that happens, the first answer is to go back to the cross, to remember who we were and who we are because of God's friendship toward us. Because as we've explored uh, for a number of weeks now, Jesus commanded us to love each other the way that he loved us. And when we put the whole story together, that started when we were still his enemies. And so in that sense, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that there's going to be times when that command to love others the way that Jesus loved us is going to also start in the same place when people are far away and maybe even very opposed to us. But then in his most famous block of teaching, the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew 5, 6 and 7, Jesus insisted upon something that, frankly, most of his followers have gone on historically to either explain away or spiritualize or maybe even outright ignore. Jesus commanded them, commanded us, to love our enemies. You've already heard it read a little earlier in the service from the message, which I just love the way Eugene Peterson puts it there. But hear it again now from the New International Version, Matthew 5, 43 to 45. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. This is very explicit teaching, a non-negotiable command from Jesus, even if we've struggled to figure out how to live it out. You don't have to actually do a bunch of mental gymnastics to figure out what Jesus is saying here. Not only is he providing the authoritative interpretation of the Torah, of God's law, But Jesus is driving it down deep into our hearts. He's commanding us to love and respond and act in a certain way to those who might be against us, either overtly, like persecuting, or maybe in other ways, maybe in attitudes or actions, whatever ways that might be true, Jesus gives us very explicit direction in how we are to respond. And why would we do that? Jesus says, because it's who we are. It's about our identity, which when we understand what has happened through Jesus and by the Spirit, we see in the New Testament that Christian ethics is always rooted in our identity. It's always rooted in who we are now because of Jesus. And so here, Jesus says, we are to love an enemy because We are children of the Father. And he he uses the example of the rain and the sun. But as we hear the whole story, we come to realize this Father is a Father who loves enemies because he loved us when we were his enemies. And so when we love an enemy, we're living out who we are as God's kids. Or, in the theme of this series, who we are as God's friends. And the command from Jesus to love our enemies ends with this command of maturity. Verse 48, 48, um, Jesus said, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we hear the word perfect, we think perfection. We think everything's got to be right and I can't make a mistake. But that's actually not what he's talking about here. He's really talking about maturity. He's talking about completeness. He's talking about a reflection that in the actions of the children, they look like the Father. And so it's a call to grow up, to be in, to be expressing in our action and in our words who we actually are now as God's kids. Let me read again what Peterson, how he, you know, he says it in the message is, is just great right at the end. He says, in a word, what I'm saying is grow up. Your kingdom subjects. Now, live like it. Live out your God created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others the way God lives towards you. Now, maybe you're thinking of someone right now. Maybe there's been someone in your life that you are really struggling with. Can you think of who that might be? Maybe it's someone quite close to you. Maybe it's someone a little further removed. Maybe it's someone online. Maybe it's someone down the street. But you might be thinking, it's impossible. Like, I can't, I can't do it. I can't extend that kind of friendship. I can't, I can't love the way that Jesus is commanding me to love. I don't know how I could even do that. I don't even want to go near them. I mean, have you seen how that guy speaks about his wife? Or have you, have you been around that woman and, and, and seen how she acts? I can't do it. And we can think that this is an impossible call, that what Jesus has said to do here is something we simply can't do. But what we discover, not only through the gospel, not only in the New Testament, but in the lives of men and women down through the story of God's people who've experienced God's forgiveness and God's grace. What we discover is that doing the impossible is what God does. And he's doing it through you and me. Through normal followers of Jesus, God is loving in impossible ways. Many stories of impossible love came out of the Rwandan genocide. But one story put the impossible into perspective for me. Because you and I can probably think of someone whom loving is hard someone that we really dislike, someone that we really push back from, someone that disgusts us or we actually despise. Or maybe befriending someone who just in so many ways believes and acts in polar opposite ways to you, we think, impossible. But how about this? What about adopting a boy who'd murdered your son? Impossible? Well, you like to remember 1994 because in the space of days, this historic hatred in Rwanda between the Hutus and the Tutsis uh, boiled over into a demonic rampage that took over a million lives. Talk about devastating, gross evil. The majority who were killed were Hutus and they were killed by Tutsis. I heard this story relayed from a Rwandan pastor who spoke about the challenge of being the one body of Christ after the genocide. If you can only imagine the hard work, the gut level work the Holy Spirit had to do and the actions that had to be taken by brothers and sisters in Christ to bring God's people back together after this unspeakable tragedy. But this work was done and is still being done. Because Jesus, as we already sang today, is a way-making, miracle-working, promise-keeping God who brings light out of the darkness. And if there was ever a darkness like this, Christ can bring light. And he does, and he has. Well, one widow lost her son in the genocide. They were Tutsis, and her son was killed by his close friend, teenage friend, a Hutu. And with his parents, this killer fled to the Congo, which many did following when things sort of uh, had settled down a bit. Many fled there. But after being in the Congo, this boy's parents also died. And at a certain point, he was forced to leave the Congo and return to Rwanda. While this widow, uh, who was a Christian, a member of an Anglican church there, she heard that her son's killer was back in the area. And so she went to her Anglican church leadership, and she asked the church to help her. And you might be thinking, help her do what, right? Help her take revenge, help her seek damages, help her file charges, help her punish, what? But no, none of that. She asked her pastors to help her bring that teenage boy home. And not just home, but into her home. She wanted not only to forgive him, not only express God's love and grace to him, not only reveal the care and generosity that only Jesus can give, but she actually wanted to adopt that boy as her son. She said, This boy was the friend of my only son, the son I don't have anymore. Yes, evil won the day. Yes, in that unbelievable time, he committed an atrocity. But nothing, nothing is greater than the power of forgiveness. She said, I need my son. I need a son. He needs a mother, and so I'm going to adopt him. I need him in my family. And so the pastors of her church mediated this, and this young murderer accepted. And today, he lives as the adopted son of that mother, caring for her, his mother. The mother of the boy that he killed is now his mother. And the pastor telling this story concluded by saying, and I quote, he said, people could not understand it. But we say, in Christ, everything is possible. Forgiveness and reconciliation is possible. Friends, as I already said, nothing, absolutely nothing, declares good news of Jesus like enemy love. God conquers evil through the power of enemy love. And so... That's our final friendship challenge in this series on true friendship, that we would so embody the enemy-loving grace that we have experienced that we can then embrace even our enemies with that same enemy-loving grace that we've received. But how? I mean, I say that sounds nice. and doesn't even sound nice if it sounds horrifying, but... You know, it's one thing to say it. How do we do it? We've got two groups in mind when I'm thinking of this. But you could maybe add some more. I'm thinking, first of all, of those who are truly evil. You know, people who do awful things. Things that God hates. People that hurt others. Hurt us. People that stand for evil. Evil ideologically or politically or in, in, in ways that are just ruinous. People who actively persecute or oppose what is good. So I'm thinking of those people. But often, not always, but often those people can sort of be out there. So I'm also thinking of a second group today. I'm thinking of people who are wrong. Now, we could add a little caveat there and say, or at least we sure think they are wrong. But I'm going to just say it bluntly. People that we look at and we say they're wrong. They're wrong in what they're doing. They're wrong in what they're saying. They're wrong in how they're acting. And, and maybe they're, they're wrong in how they're opposing me. Whatever. People who are wrong. This is where we're seeing a lot of trouble these days. A lot of fracturing that I already mentioned. Whether that's socially or politically. Whether that's in person or online. Whether it's in family groups. Even in marriages. Certainly in churches. You just name name the things that are causing all these divisions. I don't even need to. I mean, things like vaccinations, things like racial injustice, things like how how the government's handling COVID, or or, or th- things that are just going on in the you know the larger global sphere, local communities. So what I'm going to say today, I think, applies across the board. It comes straight out of the teaching of Jesus, but. But I do want to make a very particular application today. This may not, I understand, may not apply to every one of you. But, I want to make a particular application as we go along to other followers of Jesus who have actually become some kind of an enemy. Tragically, but still true. Where there's been a... Other, if you're a follower of Jesus, there's been other members of other churches or other, other places, but people who profess to follow Christ that somehow have gotten in a place where there's so much opposition, so much polarization, that it's almost like they've become an enemy. So even though what I say will apply across the board, I do want to make that particular application. And I want to share with you um, seven things as we close today. For what I would say is a Jesus-shaped strategy for loving an enemy. And I'm going to offer them to you simply. I hope they provide some kind of concrete steps that you can take, particularly if there's a person or a family member or someone in your life that you're really struggling to love. Because maybe you wouldn't have called them your enemy, but they've, they've essentially be, become people in that position. So let me go through these. And uh, you know, I invite you to to pray this. I invite you to write these down. Come back to this. Because the command to love our enemy is clear. How we do it, well, I hope this helps. The first thing we've already touched on, but I want to say it again because it is the very core, the very foundation, and that is the word gospel, or gospel means good news. The word gospel. The very first thing we have to do is get the fact that we were the enemy down deep. I don't think that we are going to be able to move in the love of Jesus toward people who are persecuting us or against us or in a different position or are just the other if we haven't fully gotten our own theology of sin right. It is so easy to begin to see other people in ways that are so different from us that we forget that we too were loved as enemies of God. And so I'm not going to belabor this point because I already said it earlier. But friends, if you are a follower of Jesus, you've got to get this really clear. We, we've got to go back to the cross. We've got to humble ourselves and kneel down and recognize I, I am a sinner. I was saved from a place of, of sin sin and death i had enemy status when god loved me i am loved by a god who overcame my enemy status through his redeeming love that is where everything starts and so i implore you root yourself in that at the foot of the cross the second is prayer you know jesus actually was quite explicit here when he said to pray For those who persecute you, and you'll see that crop up in other places in Scripture. You'll see it lived out in the example. Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Stephen, the first martyr, Father, don't let this sin be applied to their account. We see that down through history in the examples of other followers of Jesus and commanded explicitly by Jesus and other New Testament writings that we are to pray for the very people who are opposing us the very people who are causing us problems, the very people who are trying to hurt us. We are to pray for them. We are to pray for their salvation. We are to pray for the change in their hearts. We are to pray for their good and their benefit. We are to pray, yes, that injustice will end, and yes, that they will be changed, but we are to pray for their salvation and good. And we are to pray for... Whatever it is that's underneath, whatever healing they need, whatever restoration they need, whatever truth needs to be revealed, we need to pray that for them in the name of Jesus. And we need to do that hard work as we are at the foot of the cross and we're praying for those. And so I challenge you very specifically, if there's a Christian uh, in your life, if there's someone from another church or someone in your family, um, you've really been struggling with how to respond to them pray for them. Make a commitment to pray for them. Pray for them daily. Write it out so you don't forget. Write out a list of all the things that, that, that would, would, would help them grow in their understanding of God's love. Grow in their understanding of who God is and His truth. and Just pray for God's good for them. Before we do anything else, we need to work on their behalf prayer. Well, the first two you'll notice are things you do yourself. Uh, things you need to do by yourself, even. Uh, things you do before you even necessarily engage further. But then at a certain point, we do need to engage. And so for a third step, if I want to put it that way, is I want to challenge you to listen. To really listen to what is coming from a, maybe a particular camp or a particular group that you've been struggling with or that brother-in-law or that friend at work or that person that you're really wrestling with and how to respond who lives on your street or you engage with online. I don't know. But I, this, this, this challenge to seek first to understand then to be understood is something we really need to take your heart. You know, as we've been going through this pandemic and I've been hearing and and, and interacting with different groups from very different perspectives, I've been very challenged to listen well, to actually pray that the Holy Spirit would help me listen to what's going on underneath this fear, for example, underneath even the vitriol and the rhetoric. What's, What's underneath that? Why are people responding this way? If I can understand more fully, what is actually um, sourcing this fear, this anger, this response, not only can I love them more, but I'm able to pray for them more effectively. That's hard to do, though, isn't it? Because we often feel immediately defensive or we immediately want to lash out or push back. And so I challenge you to try, in the humility that only the Spirit can bring, to really listen, even to people who are coming from a very different perspective, even for people that you want to just immediately push away. Try to listen. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you empathy. The fourth is that we serve. That we actually make a choice to act in love toward a person or a family member that we've, well, that we've really been wrestling with. That we put boots on the ground and we begin to imagine ways that we can serve and do good and actively seek the benefit of someone or maybe even a group who we, we want to do the opposite. Like we, we want to see them crash or we want to see them fall or we at least don't want to have anything to do with them. But in line with what Jesus has said, he's told us to actively love and serve and, and especially, can I just make this direct application, if this really is a brother or a sister in Christ that we become, that we become um, alienated from, how can we do good, not with strings attached, but to actively serve one another in love? And that can be quite sacrificial because of what has happened in your relationship or what's been going on in your heart, but it doesn't change the fact that God actually challenges us to do that. And the demonstration in the life of Christ is exactly that. So how can you serve someone? Maybe you already, again, have that person in mind. How can you actively seek their benefit? Maybe it's sending them a gift card to Tim Hortons. I don't know. Maybe it's buying them a meal. Maybe it's just writing out a prayer that's kind and sending it to them. Maybe it's doing something active, offering to help them with something. Um, Maybe it's extending... That listening ear, going back a step, but recognizing that that's actually serving them. Because as you begin to understand maybe some of what's going on in their lives, you realize this is a person who needs someone to listen. But to serve with that humility, following the example of Christ. So, gospel, prayer, listen, serve. Number five, engage. Yes, we do engage. And yes, that means that we get to speak the truth in love. Befriending someone who is opposite of us, or maybe is even our, quote, enemy, or someone that we've had a lot of friction with, does not mean we simply keep quiet, and we never contradict, and we never push back. It doesn't actually mean that. There will be opportunities where we need to speak truth. How we do it is critical, but we do need to do it. There will be moments when it is right for us to speak out, to encourage, to to share, and to let the Holy Spirit lead you into that, but to actually be willing to engage. (laughs) I say this because, frankly, if you're like me at all, this is actually one of the hardest things. I can listen to people. I can even serve them. But I have a hard time at certain points speaking up because that's when the friction will really start. And I like to avoid friction, you know what I'm saying? And so engaging in love, standing firm in your beliefs and yet open and caring is a critical way that we extend love across enemy lines, even if those enemy lines are now unfortunately being drawn within the body of Christ. Now, I want to be clear here because uh, extending this out larger now, there are people who are uh, truly evil doing evil things. And we as followers of Jesus, we stand up and we say no to that. We resist that. We we fight against evil things that hurt and abuse others. We we stand against things that would would rip apart people's lives or, or deface them as image bearers of God. We stand against those things. But how we stand against them is through the power of Christ's love. We're told in Romans 12, for example, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And what we discover is even in how we resist evil is going to be shaped by the example and the teaching of Jesus. That we don't resist evil by taking up evil itself as though it's an effective weapon against evil. It's not. But rather, through the self-sacrificing love of Jesus, which he leads us in, we will push back against evil at our own expense. It will cost us to do so. It will cost us in family relations. It will cost us in, in you know, time, or, or it'll cost us in comfort. There are even going to be examples, of course, historically and otherwise, we're standing up against evil and saying, no, in the way of Christ, will mean even the giving up of life. And so we know this is true. We've seen it historically. We need to engage with evil, and even with evil people, but we do it in the way of Christ. This is one of the challenges that we've been facing down through history, but even today, the Christians are constantly in, living in this tension between how much of the weapons of the world should we be using to fight evil, and at what point do we just stand up in line and say, as followers of Jesus, we resist that evil, but we're willing to pay the price for it too. It's the example of Christ. Now that I wanted to say because I don't want you to think I'm living with rose-colored glasses here. There's real evil that we must resist. But bringing it back now to some of these relationships that you and I have been struggling with, how can we engage? How can we speak? How can we monitor our own heart attitudes, our own own, um, language, the ways that we've been engaging so that we can actually speak the truth in love, we can actually seek to understand, but then to be understood, the way that Jesus has called us to. We need to engage. The sixth step follows on that. And it is that we have to repent. Now, that may strike you as surprising, but what we'll discover when we engage is that there are things wrong with us. Because guess what? (laughs) We're not perfect. We've got sin, we've got confusion. It could be that you'll engage with someone across an enemy line and discover that, oh, shucks, they've got some truth that I didn't have. They're helping me understand something I've been missing. Now, that might just be true, even on some of the various things that we're disagreeing with on an issues level. But what's more likely to be true is the Holy Spirit will convict you on the way your heart was positioned. That, that's more going to be more common that that as you engage across enemy lines you'll realize i've been i've been despising this person i've been i've been condemning these people in my mind and heart um, that i haven't been loving or i've been prideful in the way i've viewed him or her because i'm thinking i'm right they're wrong they're an idiot i'm you know i've got it all together and i've realized that In many ways, there are times when Jesus says, I don't care if you're right. You're acting like a complete, well, you know. You're not acting like me. You're not acting like the Father. And who cares if you have a right idea if the way that you speak and the way that you feel and the way that you act is completely inconsistent with my character, Jesus says. He cares about our hearts. And so there's going to be moments as we engage with people where we realize the Spirit is calling us to repent, us to humble ourselves, us to be honest with the ways our hearts have been wrong in the way we've even thought or felt or engaged about other people. This has to happen. I think it's one of the critical pieces. If there is to be reconciliation in a fractured body, is there's got to be a willingness to repent all around. Well, the seventh one is that we need to be willing to wait, to be patient. You know, the things that are going on around us right now, I find them overwhelming. I find them confusing. And there's some days I, f- I find it, it feels helpless. It feels like, how is this ever going to be worked out? And I think it's at those moments the Holy Spirit just taps me on the shoulder and says, don't forget. Who's leading this church? Don't forget who died for this people. Don't forget in whose image I'm shaping these men, these women, these children to be. Jesus is the head of the church. And I have to look to him. We have to look to him. And we have to say, oh, right. As Paul said, we can be confident the one who started the work in us will finish it. And I think in in our commitment to to getting back to the foot of the cross, our commitment to praying for one another, our, our commitment to listening and serving and engaging and repenting, we have to be willing to let the Spirit do this work in the time that he deems necessary to be patient and wait for the Lord, confident that he will, Somehow, out of this mess, bring a glorious, spotless bride. This is what he's committed to doing, and he's calling us into that. So I hope these seven steps are helpful for you. I hope you'll find something in this of value when you think about, how do I love someone who seems opposed to me or seems that I'm opposed to? Whatever that issue is, whoever that person is, my hope and prayer is that some where in these seven you'll find some direction for the next step for you. And that just maybe, just maybe Jesus could be doing something among us, doing something in us that would once again stun our divided, hurting, fraying at the seams world. You know, right now I don't feel like the world is looking to the church for advice or direction or an example on how to live as a community of reconciliation. But they should be. And that's Christ's hope for us. And that's Christ's call to us. And so my hope Is that we, yes, we, Erickson Covenant Church, would be a church that is captivated and and, and enamored with God's love for us in such a way that we live out this enemy love of God to others. That somehow, in real practical ways, in the ways that you engage your sister-in-law, and the ways you engage a, a friend from another church, or the ways that you engage online, that somehow, in each and every one of those interactions, we would be pointing the world to a God of enemy love. Lived out in the very fabric of our lives. We serve a God who befriended us when we were his enemy. He calls us to do the same. This is true friendship, friends. God called us into friendship with him. Jesus actually looks at us and calls us his friends. We are called into friendship with each other. And to extend that friendship to those who have not yet discovered that God created them for friendship. Then, to go even further and extend God's compassion and grace and love and truth to people who are actually even resistant to it to do that in the way we speak, the way we pray, the way we act and see what the Holy Spirit will do to bring even his enemies into his friendship. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you loved us when we were opposed to you. Father, you have given us such generous grace and care even when we were unaware, even when we were opposed to your good intentions for us. Holy Spirit, you have worked and worked and worked to restore us back to friendship with your Father. And now I ask that you would, by your Spirit, lead us to love the way that you loved us. And I pray very specifically today for those of us who have identified someone in our life, someone in our family or at work or at school or on our street who we've really been struggling to love. And I pray that you would lead us to take your next step today. Whatever that is. May we be acting as the children that we are. Well, Jesus, we in all of this want to simply bless you. And so now, even as we transition to our final song, we bless you for being who you are. And we invite you to work in us, to do in us and through us all that you have all that you desire. In your name we pray. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening in today. We hope you feel encouraged and challenged. If you know someone who would benefit from what you have heard today, please share this podcast. For more information, or if you have questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Erickson Covenant Church.